When you contribute your fixed income deals to Refinitiv, they'll reach over half a million buy and sell side professionals around the world and be included in our industry-leading league table rankings. To ensure we're capturing your entire deal flow, visit contribute.refinitiv.com forward slash FI sign up or contact our team at contribute at refinitiv.com. Make your deal count. And coming soon to Wall Street, the name Google, the valued internet search engine company, filed plans today for an initial public offering that's getting big buzz and is expected to draw big bucks. In 2004, Larry Page and Sergey Brin decided it was time for the next chapter in the company's short history. Google was already one of the most visited places on the World Wide Web. At the age of just 31, both men were billionaires. But they had bigger plans. On the last Friday of July, they kicked their plan into action, switching on a new section of the site inviting users to buy a piece of the company. The invitation sparked a frenzy. Google was going public. At up to $4 billion, the deal was set to be the biggest technology listing in years. But, true to their nature, Page and Brin were going to do things differently. Against the advice of Wall Street, they decided they would auction off the shares to the people that used its site, rather than trust the process to the big banks. But things wouldn't go to plan. The deal would be met with enormous resistance, from the banks, from regulators, from the media, and ultimately from the general public itself. There were definitely people trying to sabotage the deal. We know there were people trying to sabotage the deal. You could say that's almost conspiracy theory oriented. I'm telling you, that's how big this deal was. Hank Paulson did want to come in and pitch the founders. It was my job to tell him to go pound sand politely. And the look of distaste on his face, I thought, okay, we have a chance at this deal. This is the story of how Google tried and failed to shake up Wall Street. I'm Gareth Gore, and this is The Syndicate from IFR. Google had started life eight years earlier as a research project at Stanford, where Page and Brin were both doing PhDs in computer science. The company's rise was truly exponential. In 2002, just four years after the company was founded, it overtook major competitors like Yahoo and MSN to become the biggest search engine on the planet. Having conquered the search market, Page and Brin had bigger ideas. They believed the world was just at the beginning of a huge technological revolution. And they saw going public as the best way of being part of that. Being listed on the stock market would give them access to huge pools of money to fund the ventures they planned. It would also reward employees who'd built the company and make it easier to attract new talent as it grew. But going public wouldn't be easy. Investors were still worried about technology stocks after being badly burned in the dot-com crash. Hundreds of companies had gone bankrupt, and those that had survived largely failed to live up to their promise. Silicon Valley was also wary of Wall Street. In April 2004, the big banks had paid $1.4 billion to settle allegations that they put out research, mainly about technology stocks, that simply wasn't true, just to win business. Sergey and Larry took note of 
all of the financial malfeasance that was um, in the top of the headlines and all of the stories about investment bankers taking advantage of their clients and companies that weren't thoughtful in how they spent money. And I think they were quite influenced by that. That's Lee's buyer who joined Google in 2003 after approaching the CEO, Eric Schmidt, about a job. A Google IPO seemed likely. Her pitch to Schmidt was, as a former investment banker, she could help the company prepare for going public. She joined the company's chaotic finance department and began working on how an IPO might look and was shocked to be told to forget everything she'd learned on Wall Street. They would say, let's do this. And I would say, well, you can't do that. And they would say, why? And I would say, because that's not the way it's done. Because I had such a Wall Street mentality. I like to joke with people that I'm not terribly tall, but I got hit over the head with a two by four so often in those early meetings that now I am at my newer, shorter stature. The fact of the matter is the founders were thinking rationally, mostly, and pragmatically. And I was stuck in the pattern, which so much of Wall Street is, not because there are bad people there, but because we all do things the way we were taught. And if the last deal worked this way, then the next deal should work this way. The Google founders had two major issues with the way that IPOs were normally done. First thing that was apparent was that the founders did not like the fact that companies went public at one price and the company itself sold stock at one price. And right away, first trade off the on the morning that the deal went public, the stock traded at, shoot, double the price or up 50% or up 60%. And to the founders, that meant money that should have gone into the treasury of the company to help build its business, instead went to those investors who were friendly with the investment banks. The second thing was they didn't just want the large funds that had strong relationships with the investment banks, they didn't just want them to have access to the shares on the IPO. Sergey and Larry in particular were very focused on the fact that the company had grown as rapidly as it had because of all the millions of people who tapped on Google ads and who used the service. And so they felt very strongly that those individuals that had contributed to the growth of the company should have access to the IPO if they wanted. Right from the start, Bayer and the rest of the IPO team were encouraged to think outside the box. They didn't have to look far for inspiration. For years, Google had been selling advertising space on its website using an auction. Each advertiser, big or small, had to bid to appear on the site. Every time Google ran a search for one of its users, the algorithm would identify relevant ads. And the higher your bid was, the greater your chances of appearing. So why not extend the same principle to selling Google shares? The team began looking at IPO auctions that had already taken place around the world, in Singapore and Australia, and read various academic papers on the subject. They thought about how it might work and how it would fit with US regulations. It was all top secret at that stage. Banks had their suspicions that something was happening, but they were kept out of the process. Investment banks always knock on the doors of rapidly growing companies, so they were definitely knocking on the doors. But we weren't discussing any of this outside yet. One of the things we worried about, because Google was such a familiar name, we were afraid that many individuals who weren't 
necessarily frequent participants in either the stock market or the IPO market would want the stock so badly that if we just said we're going to have an auction, they'd put in crazy prices. And so we were worried about something called the winner's curse, where people bid such high prices and the professional investors looking at those prices saying, that's just crazy, we're not going to pay it, and sitting out. So we wanted to try to put in some checks and balances so that could not happen. Although Google's plans were far bigger than anything seen before, the IPO auction wasn't a totally new idea, even in the US. Bill Hambrecht had been an investment banker since the late 60s in San Francisco and had helped to take Apple, Adobe, Netscape and Amazon public. But in the mid-90s, after becoming disillusioned with the IPO process, he sold off his firm to Chase Manhattan and started reinventing the wheel. His open IPO platform had a simple concept. Use a Dutch auction to sell shares in companies that wanted to go public. Anyone could submit bids, a price, and how many shares they wanted. The platform would collect them all and work out the clearing price for all the shares on offer. All the shares would be sold at that price, and no preference would be given to anyone. He got the inspiration from the Boston Beer Company, which he'd taken public in 1995. I had grown increasingly disenchanted with the IPO process. What seemed to be happening to me was that the underwriter had overtaken the process and it was no longer directed at the objectives of the issuer company. Basically, the deals were being underpriced deliberately. The guaranteed first day profit was being funneled off into the best clients of the firm and they were reciprocating with huge flows of commission business. It made a very profitable business, but it ended up that the people who really wanted to own the stock mostly had to buy it in the aftermarket at an inflated price. And it just bothered me. I think the first ideas that formulated about the auction, for me at least, happened when we underwrote the Boston Beer Company. This was in the mid-90s. Jim Cook, the guy who ran it, was an iconoclast, you know, a rebel. And what he did is he demanded that we underwrite the company and sell it to his beer-drinking population first. And then you could go to the institutions. Goldman Sachs was the book runner, and we were the co-manager. And, of course, Goldman wanted no part of it. So we sat down and we worked out something with Jim where he put neck hangers on his beer bottle that said, hey, I'm going public. If you're interested, call such and such a number. We'll send your prospectus. He sent it out, two weeks worth of production, and we ended up with 120,000 responses. And, you know, there was like I forget how much, it was $50 million, I mean, you know, for what was going to be a third of the offering. You know, it just overwhelmed us. Anyway, it just seemed to me, logically, that you had all that buying power out there, 
why weren't they allowed to bid? So it sort of led in the thought process to saying, hey, the only way you can really find a true market price is to run an auction that allows total access to the demand and total access to the supply so that you find a clearing price. By mid-2003, when Google was working on its own plans for an auction, Hambrick's open IPO platform had notched up a list of successful listings including Ravenswood Winery, Pete's Coffee and Tea and Overstock.com. The system wasn't perfect. There were still the occasional first-day pops that Larry Page and Sergey Brin wanted to avoid. And generally, the listings were modest. Still, Hambrick had proved that the auction could work. So when Google finally put out its detailed request for proposals to banks in the autumn of 2003, Hambrick pitched to manage the deal, along with almost every other firm on Wall Street. But he was far from confident. He felt the company's board had been infiltrated by too many venture capitalists and corporate types who'd guide the IPO process towards what they saw as the safe hands of Wall Street and the banks that they were used to dealing with. We really didn't pursue it aggressively because I just didn't think we'd have a chance. And what I didn't know was that Sergey Brin had actually participated in some of our auctions. And of course, you know, basically the auction was at the heart of their ad word. I mean, they were auctioning off advertising time. So, you know, there was this philosophical kind of alliance. What happened, I think it was the first board meeting that we went to. They, they had the full board there. And we went in and we demoed the auction. And I remember two things happening. First of all, Sergey found a software bug in our demo, which was a little embarrassing. But I remember thinking, boy, this guy knows more about auctions than we do. And then secondly, on the way out, Eric pulled me aside and said, look, he said, I don't understand something. He said, if I sold a million shares at 20, and you had a 7% spread, which was the traditional small company spread. He said you'd make $1,400,000. He said, if you sold it at 30, wouldn't you make more money? And I said, no. I said, if you sold it at 20 and it went to 30 in the aftermarket and you created $10 million of guaranteed first day profit and gave that to your favorite accounts, they would reciprocate with about 50% of commission flow. So I said, you wouldn't make an extra 700000 you'd make an extra $5 million. You wouldn't share with anybody. And the look of distaste on his face, I thought, okay, we have a chance at this deal. Every other bank on the street wanted a piece of the action too. And they were willing to fight hard to get on the deal. Although Hambrecht himself wasn't confident about winning the commission, others on Wall Street saw him as a threat. They were worried about the potentially devastating impact of him winning a deal of this size and how it might affect the lucrative business of taking companies public. If Google could auction off its shares, so could everyone else. Back in 2003, Harold Bradley was chief investment officer for a number of funds at American Century Investments, which at the time was one of the biggest asset managers in the US. He'd spent the previous years investing the firm's money in potential disruptors to the fund industry and had ended up on the board of Open IPO. 
he got to know Bill Hambrick well. When Google announced it wanted to go public, he saw how the Wall Street giants rallied round to stop the threats he posed. I remember a meeting where we were discussing Bill's interactions with the executive team at Google about possibly leading the underwriting, doing pricing and allocation, having one of the people competing heavily for the deal, establishing an office just down the street from Bill's because they wanted to monitor who was coming and going, which I find spooky. You could say that's almost conspiracy theory oriented. I'm telling you, that's how big this deal was. That competitor ended up hiring away one of Bill's leading analysts, as I remember, because they wanted him there to know what was being said and how. And the whole idea was, if we lose control of this deal and Bill wins, we lose everything. It wasn't only Google's decision to opt for the auction that was different. The request for proposals, or RFP, that the company put out was unlike anything that Wall Street had seen before. The big banks were used to pitching for IPOs with basically the same script, talking about their long and illustrious records, distribution capabilities, specialised analyst teams, and so on. But after months of work, Lee's buyer and her team at Google had put together a long list of difficult questions for the banks that wanted to pitch. Colin Stewart helped put Morgan Stanley's response together. We spent weeks writing it. It was a very different style of RFP. It wasn't sort of like, you know, show me your credentials, talk to me about the positioning of the company. Google asked us a series of questions. It was a written submission, sort of like essay form answering each of these questions, you know, kind of punctuated with tables and data. So we spent as much time as they would give us, we spent editing and sort of reshaping the document. You know, I, I can still remember sitting at my table at three o'clock in the morning, you know, typing an answer to a question around the auction. Google also made it clear that it wasn't interested in being wooed by the bosses at those banks that wanted to pitch. It only wanted to deal with the people who'd be working directly on the deal. But the message didn't quite seem to get through to everyone. Lee's buyer again. Hank Paulson did want to come in and pitch the founders, as did the CEOs of all of the big banks. But Goldman in particular was very focused on on having him come in. I laugh a little because it was my job to tell him to go pound sand politely. But we tried to be respectful. And so, yes, it is true that we turned down numerous requests to meet with Mr. Paulson. Goldman continued to pitch the deal, but at that point, more than any other bank, their pitch was, you're wrong, you're not thinking about this correct way, the auction is a terrible idea, let us show you how to do it right. So no offense to the Goldman of today, but the Goldman at that time was incredibly condescending and eventually not our friend during the process. We got a wide range of responses back, including a number of banks that said, that's just the dumbest idea we've ever heard. But we got back these long RFP responses, in some cases more than 100 pages, and we combed through every word of everyone to see who was going to be flexible and who we thought would be a good partner for us. And we invited most of them 
back to give a presentation in person over a couple of days. And of course, most of the employees in the company didn't know what we were doing. And certainly the press didn't have it yet. We were trying to be incredibly careful about letting this leak. And in fact, every bank got a slightly different set of instructions so that if it leaked, we would be able to track which bank was leaking to the press. Google was surprised that the banks that it had expected to be prime contenders to run the deal really hadn't engaged with the RFP. But two banks stood out after submitting thoughtful answers, Morgan Stanley and Credit Suisse First Boston, which were soon appointed to run the deal. Another 26 firms were added as junior partners, including Hambrecht, who was told how the Google board had voted his firm's short presentation as the least impressive. Being handed the hottest deal of the year led to jubilation at Morgan Stanley and CSFB, but it didn't last long. Soon, the bankers on the deal realised that they had huge amounts of work ahead. As well as all the usual work that goes into an IPO, putting together the prospectus, sorting out legal issues, pitching to investors and so on, they'd also have to build an auction from scratch and persuade regulators to let them use it. There was a lot that could go wrong. Michael Grimes was one of the lead bankers on the deal at Morgan Stanley. This is a daunting task, right? We're going to start from scratch and build code to run this auction, which hadn't been done before, and interface to all the underwriters. All of their technology had to feed into our master auction technology. So this is a daunting task. Work through the regulatory to make that work. I know it was, okay, this is a tall order to deliver. This is time to deliver for the client, I think not to celebrate. It's time for celebration could be later. But this was time to execute. It would be nine long months before the deal would be ready. But very early in the process, the two main underwriters put a safety net in place to protect Google and themselves. The founders made it clear they felt very strongly the auction had to be totally pure. But Morgan Stanley and Credit Suisse First Boston decided that was too risky. They proposed adding a provision giving Google and its banks the right to price the IPO below the clearing price if they wanted. The worry was that pricing at the clearing price would mean the next bid being lower, which would lead to the stock trading down on day one. Banks also wanted to reserve the right to allocate more or less stock to investors based on the size of their orders. This would help guard against having a book filled with tiny, flighty retail investors. What they were proposing would eventually become known as the Dirty Dutch Auction. For some, the changes were a betrayal of Google's democratic aims and confirmation that Wall Street wasn't willing to completely lose control of the process. Over at Credit Suisse First Boston, the man whose job it was to convince Google to make changes was John Hodge. And so it was a negotiation. It was a negotiation between the two banks. You know, we all had slightly different views, but we pretty much aligned a lot of that, that there needed to be some, you know, some guardrails is what I would say. And, and those guardrails could come in different forms. Morgan probably had a little bit more structure. We were a little bit more of... Yeah, but we need some structure, but let's see how the system works. But then we would go to Google and there was a lot of negotiation. But when you're creating a product, there's got to be a little bit of give and take. The regulators also took a long time to get comfortable with the deal. 
the auction was an added complexity that created new potential legal liabilities for the underwriters. John Hodge. You know, we can go philosophically back towards Google and their culture. They wanted everything to just be available to everyone at all periods of time. In the capital markets, you can't do that because there's liability. This was not a, you know, 60-day process with the SEC. By the spring of 2004, at last it seemed that everything was ready to go. Google and its banks had finally settled on how the process, the Dirty Dutch auction, would look. After months of back and forth with the SEC, regulators were finally comfortable with the deal. At the end of April, they were ready to provisionally file and publish a draft prospectus. The size of the offering was set at $2.718 billion. It was a mathematical joke, 2.718 being the value of the number E. But the reaction in the press wasn't quite what they were expecting. Lee's buyer again. When any company initially announces publicly that it's going to go public, it puts out the S1 for people to read it. And of course, we had to describe our auction process. And the media just went ballistic over that about how stupid it was. And again, they were definitely being fed lines by some of the banks who were feeding the fire. I believe the line that came from one of the banks to the Wall Street Journal is Google's auction is being run by a bunch of amateurs. At the end of July, Google updated its filing with its second quarter numbers and increased the size of the offering to a potential 3.8 billion dollars. Although it was running an auction that could theoretically lead to any price, according to the SEC rules, it had to give a potential range for where it thought the deal would price. After much debate, the banks proposed a range of between 108 and 135 dollars a share valuing the company at more than 300 times its 2003 earnings. Google then switched on the section of its website inviting users to register their interest. The ball was finally rolling. The plan was to have a short registration period, followed by a one-week auction. At this stage, the registration had informally been given the green light by the SEC, but its approval wasn't official. Then, Just as the subscription period was ending and the banks were gearing up to begin the auction, there was an unexpected hiccup. Now it's late July or early August and we're working. It's like 1030 at night and everybody's sleep deprived. And, you know, Wall Street then as now is not a terribly gender. There weren't a lot of women working there and it was still very biased in lots of ways. And so any woman who was working on Wall Street in those days had to put up with a fair amount of crap. But, you know, technology world was the same way a little bit, but not nearly so much. And so when I came back to my desk at 1030 at night, one night, and somebody had put a copy of Playboy on my desk, I thought, who's being a jerk? And then I looked at the cover and I realized that it wasn't at all somebody being a jerk next to the picture of Miss August, not the fold out, but the cover shot of Miss August was the headline, The Google Guys. Larry Page and Sergey Brin had given an interview to Playboy months earlier, but the magazine had sat on the piece and decided to publish it right in the middle of what was supposed to be a quiet period for the company. Frantic negotiations broke out with the SEC, which threatened to cancel the IPO. 
It argued that the Playboy interview was information to the offering that hadn't been included in the prospectus. Google and its banks worked to find a solution. They decided to resubmit the prospectus with the interview as an appendix. To this day, the Google filing remains the only IPO prospectus that includes an interview with Playboy. To make matters worse, market conditions were deteriorating by the day, especially for technology stocks. Netflix, which back then was a DVD rent-by-mail business, had put out some poor numbers and seen its stock price halve. Yahoo! Google's closest competitor had also disappointed the markets with its earnings and seen a double-digit fall in its stock price. With memories of the dot-com crash still fresh, investors were now thinking twice about buying Google shares. Nonetheless, Google decided to go ahead. On Friday the 13th, the week-long auction began. It proved to be an unlucky date for Page and Bryn, who were in New York that day to host a lunch for 1,500 big investors at the Waldorf Astoria. As Lee's buyer remembers, that meeting didn't go well. Uh... Hmm, this one's hard to do without throwing people under the bus. You know, some people are very good natural speakers, and many companies rehearse roadshow presentations and questions prior to going on the roadshow. And Sergey and Larry uh, were good off the cuff, but they hadn't been in this sort of a situation before. And they, the presentation was very bumpy. The jokes fell flat. The delivery was halting. It was not well done. To their credit, post that, it wasn't quite a debacle, but post that unfortunate presentation, they rehearsed, everybody got their act together. And in one-on-one meetings or, you know, small investor meetings, Each of them were terrific, but at that big group lunch, the glare of the spotlight and perhaps the lack of preparation clearly showed. There were more difficulties as the roadshow moved around the country over the course of the next few days. It became clear investors were having a real problem coming up with bids. One major sticking point was Google's refusal to offer any forward guidance on earnings. It was partly down to principle. They didn't want to offer informal guidance to big investors, but not to the little guys. But in truth, their hands were tied. The auction and the expected numbers of people bidding meant that there simply wasn't enough room on the roadshow. So, to avoid tripping securities laws that prohibited selective disclosure, Google had to be careful about giving information to one set of investors that another didn't have. In addition, Google was growing so rapidly at the time that it simply wasn't possible to give any guidance. By the end of the third day of the auction, it was becoming clear the bidding wasn't going well. The number of bids coming through was disappointing. Perhaps some were waiting until the last minute. The implied clearing price was far below where the banks had estimated. The price range of $108 to $135 proved wildly off. As a result, the banks were forced to modify their filing, with a reduced range of between $85 and $95. Harold Bradley, the chief investment officer at American Century, who'd been an early investor in Bill Hambrecht's open IPL platform, believed Wall Street was guiding investors to submit low bids. He felt many of the big banks wanted the deal to fail and were looking to sabotage the process. When the Google Roadshow came through Kansas City to pitch to his firm, he decided to challenge the Google team head-on about what was happening. 
Sergey and Eric, there in the middle of the table, had the PowerPoint slides up, and they were walking through the auction methodology. So I spent 15 minutes or 20 minutes asking them specific and detailed questions about how they viewed auctions. And I said, you know, well, talk to me about that. Couldn't you make more money if you guided people on what to bid on your site in order to win an auction space? And they were both adamant. They were just, it was like I'd insulted the core of their belief system. And they're like, well, we would never do that. Well, why, why not? Well, because if you do that, then you're starting to pick favorites. And if you pick favorites, then the auction price doesn't work. And I said, well, let me ask a question. If you don't think that auctions work effectively by coaching people on what to bid and offer on your site, then with all due respect to your banker, and I pointed down at the opposite end of the room, I said, could you explain to me why your banker has been calling all of my analysts and portfolio managers and telling them not to bid more than $85 a share? And what I recall from that meeting was stunned silence. 85, it was just such a coincidental occurrence. Lee's buyer says there was a feeling within the Google camp that some were out to derail the deal. I think part of the fault was with us for putting on a lofty range, but I also think that there were definitely people trying to sabotage the deal. We know there were people trying to sabotage the deal. Michael Grimes was the lead banker on the deal at Morgan Stanley and denies the suggestion that anyone either within the 28-firm syndicates or more broadly across the financial industry, was out to undermine the deal. Everyone, from the banks running the deal to the big investment firms who were weighing up whether or not to participate, was focused on delivering for their clients. It would make no sense to jeopardise any of that just because you opposed the concept of an auction. I haven't met anyone who said they were rooting for it to fail. So certainly from where we sat... You know, we were responsible for building the auction technology, for opening the trading, extremely focused on the company's success, did almost nothing else for a year. And I believe investors are focused on their returns. And so chance to invest in Google, more important, I think, than rooting. You know, I, I didn't see this as a sporting match of rooting. The price range itself in a pure auction like this was, is not really meaningful meaning you could bid any price you wanted. The time frame during which the auction was being conducted was a bearish one in hindsight in the markets. Other competitors' earnings, stocks were going down. It would seem logical that that affected the bids of the institutions, but only the institutions know why they bid what they bid. At the end of the week-long auction, the computer churned out the clearing price for the deal. And this is where things get a bit vague. Google has never said what that number was. The bankers on the deal say the clearing price was in the mid to high 80s. Lee's buyer says she remembers it being higher. But regardless, on the day of pricing, the decision was taken to price the deal below the clearing price, at $85 a share, exactly the price that Harold Bradley said banks had guided him towards. As a result, everyone was scaled back with those who'd bid at $85 or above receiving about two-thirds of the shares they'd asked for. That valued the deal at $1.7 billion, less than half of what had been hoped for initially. 
the banks could have triggered the clause, allowing them to group investors into tiers to have more control over who got the shares. But in keeping with the founders' wish to keep the process as democratic as possible and to ensure Google's users were treated fairly, everyone was scaled back equally. Once the price was chosen, the computer revealed the winning bidders, a list of Google's new shareholders. It wasn't quite as democratic as hoped. Google has never revealed the book, but people close to the deal say that about 60% of the shares on offer went to just four investors. According to Colin Stewart, who was at Morgan Stanley, a small group of big investors actually made an effort to understand the process. They placed big orders and they were rewarded for their efforts. The one thing that surprised me is how some of the most sophisticated investors didn't either understand the company or do the work to understand the auction. You know, you would have thought that, you know, this would have been front and center for you, given how important this company was or how important this company would be. People were just paralyzed. But a handful of investors actually sort of took the opposite path and sort of hired sort of people who were specialists in auction and psychology around the auction and then spent the time to know the company and realized that this is a phenomenal asset. Certainly in the auction, the largest investor got the largest allocation that I've ever given to an institutional investor. You know, just individually, the largest investor got north of 20% of the offering or something like that because they, one, understood the auction and they had the ability, they, they understood the auction, they understood the company and they went all in, right? So they were able to put the largest order in and therefore, allocation-wise, they got the largest allocation. On the first day of trading, Larry Page and Eric Schmidt ran the opening bell on the New York Stock Exchange. Sergey Brin decided he didn't want to take the red eye and so he stayed in California. Shares in the company surged and ended the first day of trading at over $100, an 18% gain. It's unclear whether the founders were happy or not with this. The surge saved them some face after pricing the deal at just $85, well below the upper end of $135 initially talked about. But from the outset, they'd wanted to avoid that first day pop. Was 18% too much? And what about the investor base? With about 60% of the shares going to four big institutions, was this really the democratic IPO the founders had wanted? According to Lee's buyer, there were mixed feelings about the deal, as they all headed back to California to get on with the day-to-day running of what was now a public company. It was unfortunate because the banks put too many rules and regs in. They didn't open accounts for everyone. Some people who wanted to participate probably shouldn't have had accounts, but the real issue was it was much too difficult for individuals to open accounts and fund them. The founders were disappointed with that. We were thrilled with who our institutional bid winners were. It was just the who's who. But they were disappointed that more of the stock didn't go to individuals right away. By the start of November, just 10 weeks after the listing, Google shares had almost doubled in value and were trading well above the lofty range that the investment banks had initially predicted. Today, investors that bought shares at the auction are sitting on gains of more than 4,000%. But it took a little longer for the auction itself to gain traction. For years following the Google deal, prospective companies going public gave the auction a wide berth. But today, almost 20 years on, there are signs that things are beginning to change. While Wall Street has tweaked the process to give them more power over pricing and allocation, companies such as Unity Software and Airbnb have chosen the auction to go public. Bill Hambrick says that the big banks, 
or at least those at the top, always knew that change was inevitable. I mean, I honestly think at the higher level of the banks, at the strategic level and the CEO level, they had made a decision that, okay, this is going to be part of the marketplace. But when it got down to the capital markets groups and the sales departments, you know, they just hated it because they were losing their leverage to allocate to their clients and the right to underprice it. I mean, it just took away their leverage. Thank you for listening. This episode of The Syndicate was researched, written and presented by me, Gareth Gore. The editor was Matthew Davis. This has been a fresher production for IFR. When you contribute your fixed income deals to Refinitiv, they'll reach over half a million buy and sell side professionals around the world and be included in our industry-leading league table rankings. To ensure we're capturing your entire deal flow, visit contribute.refinitiv.com forward slash FI sign up or contact our team at contribute at refinitive.com. Make your deal count.